What if we brought mindfulness to schools and Buddhism to economics? Claire Brown teaches at Cal Berkeley and is the author of Buddhist Economics, an enlightened approach to the dismal science. But in Buddhist economics, we add one more thing. It's not just consumption, but we've got to put in our, all of our experiences, all our caring for each other, our community interactions, as well as nature and the environment. Caverly Morgan is the founder of Peace in Schools, the first four-credit high school mindfulness course in the nation. But what really touches me are the actual testimonials. A teen said, do you know that this class literally saved my life? What if we brought mindfulness to schools and Buddhism to economics? We might make a more compassionate world. I'm John Shuck, and it's time for Progressive Spirit. Stay with us. For the Pacifica Radio Network and the Public Radio Exchange and from the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Schuck. If we had mindfulness in high schools everywhere, or even even earlier, we, would, we could solve huge amounts of problems. I strive for happiness and I strive for greatness, and this class has helped me doing that. Like, it's helped me, like, learn new coping mechanisms and, like, when like something's happening to just like breathe and realize that it's gonna be okay. I was in a dark place coming into this class, didn't think that like I was ever gonna get out of it, but I truly believe that this class has saved my life. Those are testimonies from students at various Portland high schools. They've participated in the Peace in Schools program. In 2014, Peace in Schools launched the first four-credit high school mindfulness course in the nation. Today, on Progressive Spirit, I speak with the founding director of Peace in Schools, Caverly Morgan. Her website is peaceinschools.org. On a similar theme, I talk with Claire Brown, who is a professor of economics at the University of California, Berkeley. She's the author of Buddhist Economics, an enlightened approach to the dismal science. Caverly Morgan is up first. Welcome, Caverly, to Progressive Spirit. I'm so glad to be here. Let's kind of just do a 101, if that's okay. Of course. Of uh, course. You've been practicing mindfulness since 1995. What is mindfulness, and how did you get started practicing mm. mindfulness? I wasn't looking for it. I actually found mindfulness because I stumbled upon it. And the way we define it through Peace in Schools uh, is being here and now with kindness. So we like to keep it simple when we're speaking with the teens. And the more that I uh, work with adults, the more I realize it can be helpful to keep it simple with us as well. So I stumbled upon a practice of how to train my attention to be in the present moment without judgment, you know employing curiosity about the nature of my present moment experience. So being present in the moment with kindness. Yeah, being here and now with kindness. Tell us a little bit about this program, Peace in Schools, sure. and how you got how you got it going and yeah. what it does. Well, it's funny. We stumbled in, upon the name. Again, I, I, I feel like on one level it happened accidentally, and on, on another level it feels like um, some sort of divine intervention. But this name, Peace in Schools, really encapsulates it. You know, we, we're offering mindfulness practice, but the program is a lot more. There's a lot more to the program than simply assisting children in training the attention to be in the present moment without judgment. We're creating an experience that is reflective of that which is most real in this world. And there's little reflection within high school walls 
of that which is most real. So students in our classes are not just learning how to train the attention to be present, but they're learning how to get in touch with their heart, an experience of love, an experience of connectivity, you know, how to relate to other people in a way that isn't contaminated with all of the dramas, the conditioned dramas that are so familiar to us, especially during that time. You know, we're adopting such deep beliefs about how the world works, who we should be, how we should survive our lives. And in our course, we get the chance to unpack that, not through asking teens to take on a new belief system, but through bringing the mind of inquiry to the belief systems that they're currently downloading. So talk about, um, if you wouldn't mind, uh, what the course is like. What will the, mm-hmm. the what do the teenagers do? Each class, I, I get to see teens for over 75 hours in a semester. And, you know, that's more than I see most adults. So that's 90 minutes a class, two times a week or three times a week, depending on that Portland Public School schedule. And each class starts with mindful movement. So we're inviting teens to bring the attention into the body. And that's really important. You can imagine as a teenager coming into a room and and having someone ask you to do some kind of contemplative exercise and then maybe meditate for three minutes. You know, if you've been sitting still in a desk all day, that's going to be a a tall order. So it's, I think, worked quite well to have the class begin with some kind of movement practice that brings the attention into the body. So it not only can strengthen the body, stretch the body, open the body, it can um, create a deeper level of awareness of ourselves in the body, which, as you might also remember as an awkward teenager, you know, our relationship with our bodies is kind of funky, you know, like a lot of shame, there's shame, there's embarrassment. I mean, I remember going through puberty and just not knowing what to do with Mm -hmm. that experience and how my body was changing and how it was changing so quickly. So it's an important part of the class uh, to to begin with mindful movement. And then we move into the mindfulness lesson of the day. And that can be Anywhere from a basic mindfulness exercise that anyone doing a mindfulness practice might imagine, for example, mindful eating or mindful walking. Or, you know, once we've really moved through the basics, the foundational elements of a mindfulness practice, we might move into exploring our negative self-talk. You know, what is it that as we're moving throughout the day, we say to ourselves unconsciously about the world, about other people, and and about ourselves? Self-talk. I, it, it, on the website, peaceinschools.org, uh, uh, you have a number of testimonies, video testimonies of some of the students, and uh, and they're very excited uh, about the program. Of um, and, and a lot of that has to do with how they see themselves and others. Mm-hmm. The, the, self, the, the stories, the tapes, I guess, we, we, we play among our heads. And so uh, the mindfulness training is to be awake to that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Not necessarily judge it, but to, to know that it exists. Yeah, I think that's an incredibly important clarifier, not to judge it at all. You know, not to just um, become present to that internal critic and then bring more judgment to the experience mm-hmm. that, oh my gosh, now I have this internal critic, I'm such a, you know, a loser. <laughs> but to really, through the lens of compassion, get to see for the first time time what internal landscape we're living in and creating through thought form what are we maintaining yeah now is there dialogue within this so is this an opportunity for students to speak back what they're experiencing thank you i i actually really appreciate that you brought that up because i forget that if i don't mention that people might think that a lot of the class is in silence and it's actually not the class is um deeply engaged on the level of mindful relating. So one of the special things that happens in the class is teens get an experience to really become um, intimate with each other in a very appropriate way, of course, within a high school setting. That word can can be a little bit charged sometimes. But what I mean by that word is that teens who normally would see themselves as separate from each other 
that falls away within the context of this class. So the popular high school um, cheerleader is in the same class that the girl who's too afraid to speak up in uh, settings outside her home, like truly um, um, real displays of um, social anxiety. Not only are they in the same room, they're in the same room learning how much they have in common. So we might do a self-talk exercise, for example, that allows that student who's been afraid to speak to see that that popular high school girl has the exact same negative self-talk that she does, that she's she's feeling victimized by that same internal voice that says, you don't know what you're doing. No one likes you. Why are you wearing that today? You're getting fat. You know, those are, those, those are the same conversations for two people who otherwise would see themselves to be existing on different planets. Caverly Morgan is my guest on Progressive Spirit. Uh, she is the founding director of Peace in Schools, and the Portland is the first place in the country that has had four credit classes on mindfulness. Talk about a little bit the, uh, the pragmatics of getting that to happen. Well, I will give some acknowledgement here to a principal named Brian Chittard, who was at, it still is, at Wilson High School. That's where it started. That was the first high school. The first high school we began was Wilson High School. And I give him credit because, you know, it's one thing for someone who used to be a monastic to uh, recognize a possibility regarding bringing practice to teens. It's another for a principal to say, I see I see what's possible here, and I'd like to follow that thread, especially when it's never been done before. So Brian observed an after-school class that I was offering on a volunteer basis with a um, a friend named Allison Copasino, who was bringing in the movement portion of the class. He observed us teaching at Wilson High School, and he said to me after one of the classes, the skills you're bringing these students need to be reaching more of my students. You only have like eight kids in this little volunteer after school program, but I have a real mental health crisis happening in my school. There, mm. there had been suicides in the school. There, ha- there were, um, each counselor ha- could have between two and three hundred teens in their caseload, and there's no way they could be tracking their their mental well being. And he acknowledged there was no. There were no tools of wellness, of, of um, supporting mental and emotional health in the school in the form of a class. So he, he said, I really want you to be reaching more of my teens. And I think at the time, his idea was, how can we get more teens to come to your after-school class? I said to him, I really believe the only way we'll reach more teens is if we make this a class that's during the school day, which was a a big request for many reasons, including I was not a certified and licensed Portland Public School teacher. But because my friend Allison was, we decided, or Brian really decided, that if we did demos and we got 20, 25 uh, teens saying, yes, we'd like to take this class, that, that he would, because of Allison's license, have the ability to put us for a section in maybe in the health department or something, just one mm-hmm. class. Well, over 300 teens said they wanted the course wow. after we did two days of demos. And so he called and he wanted to hire us full time. And I said, I, I'm definitely not ready to be a full time high school teacher. And I think we're on to something. And we most definitely were. Our program spread very organically from there. The class was a huge success. Um, And then another high school saw the success of the program, talked to the counselors, and and had that moment of, wait a second, you're getting support for your teens? Your teens were struggling. You have somewhere to send them. You have somewhere that they can go learn more about themselves and and how to deal with stresses of life and new tools and why don't we have that? And so very, very organically, the program bled outward. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I don't know how many schools, I, I suppose you know, but I know there are a number of them. I, th- I think I counted six or eight. Um, and then including schools with very different demographics. Yeah, that's been incredibly important to me and to our whole team. You know, I it was just how it unfolded that our program started in a school where 
I would say on average, most parents of the students I was working with had heard of mindfulness. Mm -hmm. It's Portland, Oregon. No surprises there. But it was incredibly important for me to know that what we were doing could be 100% equally digestible and applicable to teens who had parents who perhaps were devout Muslim or um, Christian or, you know, didn't have parents who were um, open to Eastern philosophies and perhaps owned their own yoga studio or something. You know, it was really, really important to me. And so we've been very dedicated to ensuring that our curriculum um, can meet the needs of all the students that we serve. And it's yeah, the, I think that's one of the questions that people might bring up: as is this religion, or this is this is really a secular approach? Yeah, it's important um, to acknowledge that. The tools we're offering have historically come in the packaging of specific religions. And that I think what's so critical about the time we're in now is that we're learning how to have the essence of these tools. For example, learning how to unconditionally love each other. You know, learning learning how to be present to each other, learning how to we've been we've we're in a time where I think it's important to learn how to allow those tools to exist outside the limitation of a religious context. Yeah, yeah that's right. It's not to, learning to love each other isn't dogma. It's certainly not. It's <laughs> or, or, certainly or, not. or a belief system or anything like that. So what we're talking. In fact, uh, people of all different, uh, I think, religious practices uh, and none. Uh, find mindfulness training to be an assistance uh, to their lives. Yes, I agree. And I credit John Kabat-Zinn for, you know, how he brought mindfulness into hospitals and other settings so that folks could see it, it can support anyone who wishes to be supported by it. Now, this isn't just you. You mentioned you have a few instructors. How many are there and what kind of training do they receive? Yeah, thank you. I have a terrific uh, relationship with Sam Hendricks, who is our program manager. Um, There's a man named Barnaby, who I am forever grateful to have been connected to. Barnaby wears about 10 different hats in the organization, but he's he's really an outreach um, coordinator, a a developer of um, contexts in which we can um, move, you know, so he's he's uh, also teaching in Cleveland High School as he takes on those those other hats of um, expanding the organization. Uh, Janice Owenby, uh, I moved from uh, New York City, of course, with her permission, I pleaded uh, as we expanded the program. And she is a terrific, um, she's a a person who's deeply dedicated to supporting the evolution of the curriculum as well as training new folks. So those are the full-time employees. And then we have part-time employees that support the uh, the organization as well. So we have a part-time communication coordinator. We have a, a part-time administrator. And then we have part-time teachers. And those are all um, teachers who've been, of course, trained um, trained by me and Uh, I should mention that we are simultaneously creating a training program. When when these teachers came on board, they came on board because they were um, adult students who I I knew the depth of their mindfulness practice, and I knew that it wouldn't take a lot for them to – learn the curriculum that we had we had uh, designed and apply the depth of their experience to working with teens which in our case all the teachers we have had previous experience with teens have you had any bites from people in different areas of the country or perhaps other parts of the portland metro uh, to uh, include mindfulness in their curriculums yeah i'd say more than more than bites i'd say that Um, At least every week we get an email from someone who is interested in what we're doing. And I I appreciate that because it has allowed me to see the depth of the need um, Mm -hmm. regarding what it is that we're offering. And in terms of our own expansion, 
there's little that's more important to me than keeping the integrity of what we've built. And so we're not in a hurry to expand as much as I hate to admit that to some um, who are eager to have the program. What has allowed the program to be as successful as it is, is the depth of practice from those who are teaching the class. So um yeah, I've just learned that that's absolutely critical. So we have some folks in Seattle that uh, are likely candidates to bring the program to Seattle next. We have some folks in California that are likely candidates, and um, we're we're moving at a very cautious pace. I can appreciate that because I can imagine that scaling up um, could be uh, quality control <laughs> might be it would be an issue. And if uh, and if I don't know if there's any kind of you're starting it out. I mean, there mm-hmm. isn't any kind of national curriculum or anything like that uh so uh, and imagine it could go in different directions in different places too yeah yeah. which which might be a good thing exactly you know what i what i appreciate about what's happening in this mindfulness boom is people are being creative i mean we're we're creating something new and in in the creation of something new, um, one of the shadow sides of that is folks who don't actually have very much experience with mindfulness are sometimes offering it um, as a kind of quick fix to our mm. stresses. And that's not what we're doing in this class. This class isn't a quick fix. This isn't a self-improvement plan. This isn't, um, this isn't a class that just merely help students do better on their tests. Now, two ah. students do report to me that they actually feel like they do better on their tests, but we don't go in with that goal. You know, we're here to remind folks of their inherent wholeness, their, 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 um, to help them tap in with their own sense of goodness, which we lose. We lose that, that experience of connection to ourselves as we struggle with the pressures of the world. And then as we experience who we authentically are, yes, we tend to we tend to um, be able to be more social in our lives if that was a struggle before. We tend to improve better on tests because we're no longer struggling with self-talks that says we're an idiot. You know, those mm-hmm. those things are byproducts, but they're not our goal. You know, I want to wrap us here by, by going back. Uh, the principal, Brian, um, can we get his last name? Yeah, again? Brian Jatard of Wilson High uh, School. Wilson High School. He came to you saying, hey, I've got these issues. Now he's had the mindfulness program now for a couple of years without giving names, without giving any details, particularly how success stories with in this regard yeah i mean do you have a few hours Ah. i it's um i i'm i'm so deeply moved on a regular basis by the success stories of our program i mean just on the statistics level you know 97 percent of teens report positive changes in their emotional and mental state after participating in our course and you know 92 percent of our teens report less stress um, less tension and less anxiety in and outside um, school so we have and and by the way we have a uh, a wonderful gal from Johns Hopkins that's uh, going to do her dissertation and we're so we're we're about to create a an outside study these are all just internal you know before pre and post uh, statistics that we gather but the statistics are are truly off the charts regarding what these teens say about how the class affects them but what really touches me are the actual testimonials you know what really touches me is is when you hear a teen say, this actually uh, just happened to me last week, a teen said, do you know that this class literally saved my life? I'm not speaking in terms of a metaphor here. I struggled so deeply with anxiety before this class that I was flunking out of school, that I was struggling with family life because I was flunking out of school. The, the worse I did in school, the more school I skipped, the more I got into trouble because I wasn't in school. And I mean, her life truly was spiraling downward to the point of, uh, you know, that you know, that point where your life starts to spiral and you begin to ask yourself, will I be able to pick it up from here? You know, there's there's kind of a for I think some of us, a a point of uh, it's not no return, but it's hard to imagine how how a a return to balance or ease could could actually be possible. Well, her life really was heading in that direction. And as a, a person of color, she 
um, felt uh, felt the weight of um, racism that her family had experienced, that she had experienced. And it was incredibly powerful to me that not only could she have something in her life that she feels saved her life, but that she's so articulate now. This is the joy of working with teenagers. You know, they're they're articulate. So mm-hmm. she's, you know, she's a senior in high school now. So she's able to name exactly what it was that has given her a new sense of how she can be in the world from a completely different orientation than before the class. So it's it's incredibly powerful, you know, and, and I have teens who, you know, struggle with self-harm. I have teens who've attempted suicide, you know, to watch transformation in those arenas. Um, it just doesn't really get more powerful than that in, in my experience. Kaverly Morgan has been my guest on Progressive Spirit. She's the founding director of Peace in Schools. Thank you for what you do and for being with me today. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. Next on Progressive Spirit, Claire Brown, professor of economics at Cal Berkeley, talks with me about her book, Buddhist Economics, an enlightened approach to the dismal science. This is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Schock. Stay with us. This is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. Claire Brown is professor of economics at Cal Berkeley. She's also a practicing Buddhist. She's developed a holistic economic approach where the economy delivers a high quality of life in a sustainable world. Her website is buddhisteconomics.net. Welcome, Professor Brown, to Progressive Spirit. It's wonderful to be with you. Thank you. You are a professor of economics at Cal Berkeley. How long have you been a scholar of economics? My entire professional career. It's like, you know, I went to graduate school, got my Ph.D., and then I came to Berkeley to start teaching on the faculty. It's been a long time, probably longer than you've been alive. (laughs) Well, how has your approach to economics evolved over the years? Oh, it's gone through a lot of different stages. I started off in in social justice and economic justice has always been my main concern. And when I was in school, um, we were concerned especially with the feminist movement and with racial integration. And those were really important movements. And we, we went a long way in them, not as far as we could have gone, but we've seen a lot of ups and downs, as you know. And so my economics was focused initially, my dissertation was on race and gender inequality and discrimination, how it occurred, how it happened, and the results. And then from there, I wrote, I spent a lot of time writing a book on the American standards of living, thinking, somewhat naively, if I could just show that how rich people spent their money on these positional and high-status goods and how people with a lot less money didn't have enough good food and health care and education and all the things they needed to raise healthy kids and live good lives, then surely the the country would say, well, we need much more progressive taxation. We need to tax the rich and, and help those with much more important needs. But unfortunately, Ronald Reagan <laughs> came into office just at the, right about the time I was writing this book. And clearly the country took his sort of hogwash that said, hey, everybody's doing fine. We have a great social safety net. It's okay now if some people earn a lot more money than others because they deserve it. And so don't worry. It's okay. And I realized, oh, my, that didn't, that didn't work very well. But many of us were working on inequality and how to, to really reduce inequality, and we kept working on it, even though the country wasn't always in sync. But then global warming and climate change became, I think, a much more serious issue. As, as I would say to my colleagues, you know, does it really matter if we have a lot of inequality, if we're ending the world, if no one's going to be around to enjoy life? It's like 
and inequality and climate change are all interrelated because poor people are often hurt the worst and they don't have the money to help protect themselves. But still, we have to care enormously about climate change. And so I think environmental justice has become one of my, if not my major concern, right there at the top, along with with economic justice. How uh, how did you come to decide that a Buddhist philosophy would be a helpful resource in understanding economics? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so I was teaching Econ 1, and, and we teach this very competitive free market approach, which is really quite awful. But it's easy. It's powerful. It's easy to learn. The students can quickly get it, even if it's not a model that most of us believe we should be teaching. And at Berkeley, we really don't, but we still teach it. But then we have certain classes where we talk about, but now here's, what, here's the problem with inequality. But it's not integrated into the model. And then we have some more classes about, whoops, here are some problems of these negative externalities of pollution, where we're really causing enormous harm to people, the planet, and our health. But that's a different set of lessons, and none of it's integrated. So I'm out walking with my greyhound, my rescued greyhound in the hills, and he looks at me and he says, hey, wow, how would Buddhists teach economics? Because I was a practicing <laughs> Tibetan Buddhist and still am. And I thought, what a great question. So as my dog and I continue walks over the weeks, I'm thinking, you know, we understand people are all interdependent, and we're interdependent with each other and with nature. So how would we start off with a model of economics and a system of economics that's based upon those premises, that we're all interrelated and interconnected, and then all of a sudden, inequality means that we're all hurting from people who are suffering at the bottom and that the rich aren't making any of us better off. They're just isolating themselves and actually probably their greediness is making them very unhappy. And then you come in with sustainability and climate change and and a basic tenet of Buddhism and almost all spiritual practices is do no harm, don't hurt others. And Pope Francis told us really clearly, you know what? He says in Laudato Si, he says, when you get in your car and drive, you're putting carbon in the air and you are hurting other people. And that's a sin. And it's like, okay, you can't be clearer than that. So we realize that our interconnection with nature means we have to care for, for earth and be part of earth. And our interconnection with people means that when anyone's suffering, we're all suffering. And that takes you to a very different kind of economic system. Because you have to measure all of those things within to the economic system. The economics as we get it now is I'm not an economist. I'm just just a, a layperson trying to figure this out. But the, the measure it by this, you know, what gross domestic product or gross national product. And it, and it has no connection in many cases, with the reality, as you mentioned, of, of pollution of people's lives or, or of happiness or however we can measure that, that there's really a disconnect. Oh, there's a complete disconnect. And, and I think that's one of the reasons we've had such a hard time figuring out how to create an economic system that provides a higher quality of life, because we look only at income or, as you said, GDP, national income. So it only measures anything that goes through the marketplace. So anything that's bought or sold in the marketplace is part of national income. Everything else is ignored. All the things we do with our time, all the meaningful relationships, all the ways we help each other, and then all the ways we're degrading the environment, which is a big negative. When we have so much air pollution and, and carbon emissions, it's making worldwide enormous health care costs and people's health degradation, especially young people and older people. And the World Health Organization measures this, and we're talking about the trillions of dollars of health care problems. And so we say, gee, we're leaving all of this out of our measure of national income and economic growth or economic performance. And every economist I know says we should do it differently. And yet we can't figure out, we can't come together and agree on it. Economists are not very good at agreeing with each other, I must tell you. Um, you, know, you put six of us in a room, we come out with six different ways 
to measure quality of life. And you would think, you would finally, we'd look at each other and say, you know, any one of these ways is better than the way we're doing it. So let's just move on. <laughs> let's just try anything um, that's more than consumption and national income. My guest is Claire Brown. She's the author of Buddhist Economics, an Enlightened Approach to the Dismal Science. She teaches uh, economics at uh, Cal Berkeley. Uh, dismal Science. Then uh, <laughs> you, you, a couple of things I want to follow up with. One is you said that um, all the economists you know know that the, that the, the way it's been done is, is we could do better. Uh, does I'll just be suspicious. Uh, does economics just naturally a science developed by and for the wealthy? Well, it, I think if you went and asked economists, they would like, shriek, no, 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 we couldn't possibly be doing that. And yet politicians use this free market approach, this very simple model that I was telling you about that ignores inequality, that ignores pollution and climate change. It ignores all of those things. And it just focuses on consumption and average consumption. And so, you know, if you take this free market model that Trump and all his cronies and all the rich people just love, it says, oh, we should cut taxes. It says we shouldn't, we should treat everyone equally in terms of taxes, which means cut taxes for the rich and not help poor people. It, it comes out with these horrible policies even though economists can tell you very clearly that each society picks their inequality and we know the policies to reduce inequality. Each society picks their global warming and their carbon emissions and we know how to reduce the carbon emissions. We know how to do those things. It's just you have to believe that it would make us all much better off if we reduced inequality and if we went to a clean energy economy instead of a fossil fuel economy. And, and we know how to do those things. It's not that we're waiting around to figure out how to do it. And so in my book, I go through the specific policies and how we can get there. And, and we know the roadmaps to get us to a clean energy policy. There are two of them. And my, my book tries to explain it somewhat simply, but there are tons of of references at the back if people want to look them up, and a lot of them are online. Um, but it's not really that complicated. It's like we know the path. And I think most Americans, at least those, the ones I know in California and the, the economists I know around the world, they think inequality hurts us all, and they know global warming is going to kill the earth for humans. And it's like we all know that we could be on a much better path. And so the economists that, that know me and read my book, they all say, well, Claire, this is great. You're absolutely right. As rich countries, we got to move from consumption and move to caring about equity and justice and climate change. Okay, we got to do that. And you also write that Buddhist economics is also an idealistic daydream, at least in materialistic economies. So that's that's a quote from you. So is this a daydream or is there a way to implement uh, Buddhist economics in the United States? I mean, how how, uh, how do you see this transition happening? Oh, I don't actually I don't think it's an idealistic daydream, except maybe in the United States. If you go okay. to other countries, uh, especially in Europe, they're way ahead of us in setting up a social safety net to care for everyone. They're way ahead of us in providing time off from work to care for family and children, paid time off for maternity leave and paternity leave. They're so far ahead of us in providing health care for all and providing good education through university level that's free or very low cost. They're, they're so far ahead of us in providing the social policies that give people the opportunity to develop themselves fully and participate in social life together. And they're now starting to also work really hard on climate change and reducing carbon emissions. France and Germany are really taking the lead in that. And they're way ahead of the U.S. in decoupling their economies from the fossil fuel industry. So they're moving to clean energy. And, and that's very encouraging. So we, we take them, and economists take those as the countries we study to see what policies work, how well they work, some work better than others. And that's why we know actually the path 
to reducing inequality and global warming. And then let me say there's one more leg that Buddhist economics brings in, and that's that we actually care about suffering around the world. So actually all the rich countries, Europe, the U.S., Canada, all of us together, we actually haven't paid quite enough attention to reducing suffering around the world, although the U.N., the leader in teaching us how to do it, has made some major strides. And the U.N.'s really showed us it is possible to reduce extreme hunger, extreme poverty. It's possible to really improve education for women, and, and especially who are in many countries not educated. It's really possible to provide better shelter and clean water for people. It's truly possible to improve human rights. And, and so in the book, I mentioned some of the things that some of the programs that were spearheaded by the United Nations with input from the rich countries, both public and private, to do these, to make these goals. They call them the Sustainable Development Goals. And the UN has shown that when we work together, we can really reduce suffering around the world. It just takes a commitment by the rich countries to provide the resources and to help make it happen. So, so those are sort of the three things. It's like we want social equity. We want a clean environment that we care for. And we want to reduce suffering for all 7.5 billion of us with the number growing. In the midst of that, we live in the United States in, in which I've heard that uh, 400 billionaires own half the wealth. So now I'm not sure if that, right. those oh, numbers are right. Time, John, so I love that number, except every time I hear the number, which comes from Oxfam and is also helped with Pew Charitable to, to dis- disseminate it, every time they've redone that number, the number gets smaller and smaller and smaller. So it's getting worse and worse and worse. So with that, um, it isn't a matter of just people getting the idea. I mean, there is really a power struggle that we are facing uh, within the United States. I mean, those folks aren't going to give it up voluntarily. We're, we're in the midst of a really important power struggle. And we, we have books like Dark Money um, that shown us that how the fossil fuel industry and the investment sector industry, how they, they've really bought our Congress and our state houses yeah. and our local governments. And it's almost like I think Trump's election was, was the call to saying, hey, America, wake up. Your elections have been bought by the rich people and the fossil fuel industry. And both of those are causing your major problems of inequality and and global warming. Wake up, America. And so I think we, I almost feel like, you know, we're the drunks that hit rock bottom. We (laughs) had to come this low with rich people taking over the government and the fossil fuel industry taking over the government. And now saying, hey, just a second, we don't want what you're doing. We want, we don't want the rich to pay lower taxes. And the most recent um, survey showed that Americans don't want to reduce taxes for the rich, that the majority of Americans agree that rich people don't pay enough and companies don't pay enough in taxes for programs for the U.S. And most people don't want to have more Pentagon spending while we cut social programs. It's like, and, and we, we see people protesting, and we see people rallying, and it's going to be a long slog back, but we've got to make that slog. We, one of the things that's really important in Buddhist economics is to have a community of friends. And you know, it can be anything from your church to any Buddhism we call it our Sangha, our friends at the Buddhist temple, but it can be your people you garden with, or your neighbors, or your book club, or your golf buddies. It could be any group that you have a warm rapport with and share values with, and you say to them, you know what, we have to go out and protest what the harm is being done to people and to the climate. We have to stop Trumpism, and at the local and state as well as the national levels, but right now, local and state levels, we have to demand good policies to help people and help the earth. And we can do it. We can do it, but we can't do it alone. We, we have to do it together. 
talk about your own research. I think this is very illuminating on how U.S. families spent money on the three categories. You mentioned it at the beginning of the program, uh, basics, variety, and status. Uh, and you focused in the 20th century, and you tracked a real change uh, in priorities from the beginning of the 20th century uh, to the end of the 20th century. Can you explain those categories in your research? Oh, yes. So it's basics are what everyone needs and everyone does have, have to have in order to be to take care of their families and their needs and also be part of, Adams has said, to be, to, you know, participate in community life. What do you need? And so those are the basics. And then the status goods, people understand pretty clearly. It's goods that mark yourself. They're called positional goods. It's... Um, Fanciness, how fancy am I, or how well can I isolate myself when I go on vacation, or uh, just markers, how well can I show off my appearance with jewels, and so those are the luxury items, and then what's in the middle we call variety, um, or comfort goods, and this has a long history in economics, so those are goods that actually make our life easier, um, more fun, more comfortable. And those goods are fine, too. Everybody wants some basic, everybody needs basic goods, and then everybody wants to add on some variety to make their life more interesting and fun and and more comfortable. So that means you want to have, you know, shoes that you can run in, and then you want to have shoes you can go out and dance in and party in. You don't just want one pair of shoes that you can do anything in. Uh, it just means that you want to be able to buy different kinds of food and make meals that everybody in your family enjoys. Um, you do want to take a vacation. You don't want to show off on your vacation, but you want a meaningful experience on your vacation. And and so you have these three kinds of goods. And in Buddhist economics, what you can do is you can take all those status and positional goods which don't add to social welfare. They're just separating, marking people, and probably making the rich feel actually somewhat unhappy because they're grasping after their status. And you can get rid of those goods, and you can increase the basic goods for everyone so everyone has them. And then people can also have money to buy variety. And that's where sort of personalities come into play. Oh, different people have different wants when it comes to variety. Um, and so well, over, over time, as the economy has developed from the beginning of the century, last century, uh, we've, the, the basic goods grow in number because people actually can do better and better. But variety became much more important and it was good. But the really sad thing is that status goods just bloomed, just became huge in the terms of total consumption as inequality grew and rich people started taking home a lot of the fruits of economic growth. So we ended up with all these status goods that weren't helping society, were in fact actually hurting society. And we ended up with some people towards the bottom without enough basic goods and a lot of people who could have been better off with more variety. So we haven't seen social welfare going up with our economic growth as much as it could have. And uh, as Buddhism has an eightfold path, you have uh, eight steps toward a Buddhist economy. Can you talk yes. about those? So the way in Buddhist economics we think about it is you have a pie. So we always have the pie, and that's national income. And then how you slice the pie up for everybody is the distribution. Who gets how big a piece? But in Buddhist economics, we add one more thing, and we say, oh, what's in the pie? That really matters. It's not just consumption, but we've got to put in our, all of our experiences, all our caring for each other, our community interactions, as well as nature and the environment. And so now we have a pie and how we distribute it is everything according to also what's in the pie. And, and so the eight steps are all leaning or telling us how do we go to a system that cares about what's in the pie and the distribution of the pie as well as the size of the pie. And um, it has four steps. I mean, four steps for the government, two for companies, and two for people. So the government really needs to tax and transfer 
in a way that we've talked about in terms of progressive taxes and social welfare programs with safety nets and, and education and, and uh, health care for all. And then also to bring in sustainable agriculture. We, we have to move from industrial agriculture that's depleting the earth to sustainable agriculture, which once again, we've been shown that it can be done. And then you look at companies, and companies really need to have the incentives to provide the new energy, the new technology, so that we can all find ways to live without polluting the earth. But we can only do that with the things that we're able, like the kind of transportation we can have or the other kinds of heating we can have. So, so we need to have green products to have a green way of life. And then for people, you've already said it's like the people on this show try really hard to live a meaningful life with awareness for, for what's around them and caring for others, and they're not focused on consumption. And they're not chasing after market goods and services, but they're, they're really caring about how am I living and how are the people around me living. They're much more aware of their diets and not wasting food. Um, they're just aware of how they're affecting the environment. And in Buddhist economics, we say it's actually a prayer. May we heal the earth as we heal ourselves for the benefit of all. And and I think that that's actually a mantra that probably everybody on your show could understand. How we're, how we're doing is related to how everyone around us is doing and how the earth is doing. And we, we mindfully care about everyone else in the earth as well as ourselves. It all goes together. Fantastic. Claire Brown, my guest, author of Buddhist Economics, an enlightened approach to the dismal science. Uh, check out her book. And Claire, thank you, uh, Dr. Brown, thank you so much for uh, this book and for being with me today. This was great. And I hope people, too, will check out the website, BuddhistEconomics.net. It has a lot of great information and some blogs. And if they're interested at all in the topic, they can go there and learn a lot about it. So it was wonderful talking with you, and thank you for such a wonderful radio show. Progressive Spirit is heard every week on several radio stations across the country. On Progressive Spirit, you hear interviews with cutting-edge scholars, authors, and activists who have something to say about social justice, human flourishing, and things that matter. Progressive Spirit is formatted for radio and is distributed through Public Radio Exchange, PRX, and the Pacifica Radio Network. You can also catch Progressive Spirit on podcast, hear it on your favorite podcast app. If you like what you hear and listen on iTunes or Stitcher or any app that has a place for a review, leave one. More reviews help the show get a wider audience. And if you have ideas or for guests or would like to comment on an episode, contact me through my website, progressivespirit.net. You can comment on Facebook. Retweet us on Twitter. Progressive Spirit is produced in the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon. I'm John Shuck. Be well. If we had mindfulness, we can learn to accept that my reality is different from yours. And your reality is different than mine. And you're entitled to think your opinion. And I'm entitled to think my opinion.